and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hi, I'm Natalia Mahmoud, AJC's Assistant Director of U.S. Muslim-Jewish Relations, and we've been busy working with AJC's co-convened Muslim-Jewish Advisory Council on getting Congress to pass the Jabara Hire No Hate Act to improve FBI's hate crimes reporting. The measures laid out in the No Hate Act will significantly improve our understanding of hate crimes and help law enforcement respond more effectively. We can't afford to be bystanders in times like these. It's up to us to work together to fight anti-Semitism and bigotry in all forms. That's why AJC's work is so critical. I hope you'll consider making a gift to AJC today. And if you support AJC now through December 31st, a generous donor has offered to double your contribution, dollar for dollar up to 350000 To make your gift, please visit AJC dot org slash donate. Last week, the Knesset voted narrowly on a preliminary measure to dissolve. Israel as a parliamentary democracy has regularly scheduled legislative elections, but can also have early elections if the parliament, the Knesset, decides that the present composition of the government isn't working out. If Israel does go to elections, it would be the fourth vote in two years, a staggering political standoff. Joining us now to help us understand what is going on is Tal Schneider, the political correspondent at the Times of Israel. Tal, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, in order for this bill to dissolve itself, to get a majority vote in the Knesset, it means that some members of Knesset currently in the government must have voted for it. Why do government members want elections now? Well, exactly as you said, Sefi. We have the blue and white party or, or faction that is part of the government, but right now they are in a big fight with the Likud. It is Gantz against Netanyahu and vice versa. The main reason for that is a big breach of, of the coalition agreement actually done by Netanyahu early on. The unity government, the so-called unity government, was formed back in May. And immediately thereafter, the Prime Minister Netanyahu broke his main obligation under the coalition agreement, and that is to put forward the most important bill, the budget bill. The original agreement between those two people, Gantz and Netanyahu, was to have the uh, 2020 and 2021 budgets run together. It was supposed to be voted on together until the end of August. On June, he already said he's not going to do it. I mean, he started by implying, but, you know, it was clear during July and August that they're not voting for the budget of 2021 and also 2020. And they were in this political fight. They reached some sort of understanding that they will vote on the 2020 budget soon, but it never happened. And uh, Gantz kind of lost all trust. I mean, he did not have too much trust to begin with. 
but he lost all trust in the ability to run the budget. If the budget doesn't pass, then the rotation between Netanyahu and Gantz on, that is scheduled for November 21 doesn't take place. So the budget was used by the prime minister in order to prevent from Gantz taking his turn as a prime minister at the end of November. It's a little bit compl complicated, but this is what happened. You're right, it's complicated. I mean, to American ears, I think we think it's simple. And then you try to explain to someone who isn't American, the electoral college, and they're like, I'm sorry, what? To American ears, this sounds bizarre. Think of your shutdown. When you have shutdowns and you don't have a budget, this is almost the same, except it is most, more severe because we don't have a budget by now for two and a half years. And we are in the middle of a pandemic, which means we need a lot of resources to, you know, to play along. So, and also we always have the security needs. So putting all of this together in the constitutional crisis, the health crisis, the social crisis, the fight between the government, and we don't have a budget running now for more than two years. This is just craziness. So I want to try and kind of explain it back to you to make sure that I and our listeners understand, because even before we get to the budget thing, right, the idea of a rotation, I just want to make sure that everyone is keeping up. It would be like if, I mean, this 2020 election in America wasn't particularly close, but let's say the 2016 election, if instead of winner take all, you know, Donald Trump gets the most electoral votes, so he becomes president and Hillary Clinton gets nothing, it would be like if they had agreed that, you know, Donald Trump would take the first two years of the four-year term and Hillary Clinton would take the second two years of the four-year term. And similarly, like oppositional, right? Because Benny Gantz was running as the anti-Netanyahu. I wouldn't compare the systems. You have the presidential system. We are under the preliminary system, uh, parliamentary system, I'm sorry, uh, as uh, very close to the British system. And um, we don't have a constitution here. You do have a constitution. Your constitution is very helpful to have the government, you know, transfer of powers. Here it's much more shaky. We don't have the constitution to trust on. And then, then what we see is we see those politicians Changing, changing the laws and the basic laws, which are semi-constitutional laws, they just keep shifting and changing them according to their private needs. So for the rotation, for example, you just take the most regular basic law of the government and you just change it, you play with it, you create it from start to make it possible to accommodate a rotation. It's a creature that is unhealthy to the Israeli democracy, Saying that, we did have rotation government in the past even more than once. So the rotation government is not a new uh, concept here. It's been, it's been in the history of the country. It's been used several times. Not too much, but I think this is the third time maybe. What is happening right now is, is even when they changed the law and even when they wrote uh, this coalition agreement, it didn't help for one side to be the main infringer of this agreement and the other side to be, you know, now I'm talking about guns, to be kind of dragged along and then also in breach. So both sides contributed to the situation, but I would put more of the responsibility on the incumbent prime minister 
And there's probably a little bit of jujitsu going on right now where each side wants to make it look like the other is the one that's forcing them to go to elections because I would assume that Israelis don't particularly want more elections, even though it does mean a day off of work. Although I guess everyone's kind of off of work right now. That's less fun than it used to be before the pandemic. And so, so everyone's kind of trying to make it look like the other side is responsible. Right. There is this kind of, um, you know, spin room here about this, who is to be blamed. But I have to tell you, when it comes down to election day, I, I don't think the public really cares. I mean, if the, when you ask the public who is to be blamed, they say constantly since 2019, they say Netanyahu, hmm. yet they vote for him, you know, with big numbers. So, I mean, who cares? I mean, Gantz to be blamed or Netanyahu to be blamed. We just had a poll the other day asking the public who is responsible for this, you know, the Knesset uh, uh, being dissolved. And even though Gantz was the person who voted for the dissolvement and Netanyahu didn't, voted against it, the public said 40% Netanyahu is to be responsible and 20% Gantz. But as I said, I mean, Gantz has six seats in the polls and Netanyahu has 30. So, I mean, it's not really important. Yeah. Now, it's not yet clear if Israel definitely is going to go to elections. There are a few, like, significant parliamentary steps that still need to happen. But the members of Knesset are certainly acting like they expect elections. And what I mean by that is something that's been termed a political earthquake, and that is uh, Gidon Saar, the former education minister. I think he was very popular as education minister, long seen as Prime Minister Netanyahu's chief rival within the Likud party, Gidon Saar just resigned from the Knesset, like, I think two days ago, and announced that he was forming his own party. Before anyone knew who was going to be on the party's list of candidates, there was already one poll, I don't know how much stock we're supposed to put in this poll, but there was already one poll that gave his party 17 seats, which would make it the third largest in the Knesset. So can you tell us who is this incredibly popular guy who just on his name alone has so much immediate appeal? He is secular. He is from Tel Aviv. He did not have a driver license until I think a year ago. He's 54. And so he was using the buses or taxis. He is married to this very successful, great, smart, prominent news anchor. It's a second marriage for both. They were kind of the thing in Tel Aviv circles for a long time. And he's well-connected to the media. He has friends. He always treats reporters very, very nicely, very accessible. He doesn't bash them. He was um, actually a lawyer back in the days, and he used to work in the state attorney department that was defending some of the, um, you know, um, broadcast like a country broadcast official broadcasters right like npr or or people that are coming from we call it here iba israel broadcast um, authority so he was working as a lawyer defending them in court so he knew the lawyer he knew the reporters then he was the secretary of the government under netanyahu and back then he was already kind of hip and young and you know smart savvy politician but he's very much to the right wing. People say that he's much more right wing than Netanyahu, you know, with respect to annexation, with respect to settlements and so on. But still with all of this, is very supportive of a strong uh, Supreme Court, of a strong judicial system. And Israel's judicial system has been under attack from Netanyahu for many years now. And, and Saar is considered as kind of this, you know, semi-legal scholar who can 
who can resonate the importance of a strong judicial system. I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage here. You've seen four polls. I've only seen the one. Uh, but but that same poll that I referenced that has Guido and Sars party doing so well tell. And by the way, I'm calling it Guido and Sars party. Apparently, it was originally named Tikvacharasha, which means a new hope. And then people were pointing out that that's the name of the first Star Wars film. And so maybe his party spokesperson backed away from that. Anyway, I don't know what to call it right now, but we'll just call it Guido and Sars party. He came out pretty quick and said, "New Hope is only a slogan. It's not the name of the party." And when I think of a new hope, I think of this little village up in Connecticut or somewhere. <laughs> so that same poll that has him doing so well tells a very interesting story about the left-right divide in Israel. If we set the Haredi parties aside, right, set the, set the ultra-Orthodox parties aside, and we set the Arab party aside, um, and probably a, a, among those three parties, there are maybe 30 seats, let's say. And then there's, there's, there's the centrist party, Yeshatid, set that aside. We're only looking at the parties that are ideologically right and ideologically left. I count 68, or let's say between 65 and 70 right-wing seats, and only 11 left-wing seats. What does that say about Israel, and what should we expect from the upcoming election? Because I don't get the sense that a future government, that whatever government would come out of this kind of upcoming election, is going to break down very neatly on right-left lines. You have a lot of centrists in Israel. They have, you know, special uh, character. The first character is they don't care about right or left. I mean, on the Palestinian issue or other issues, maybe even the economic issue, they don't care much about it. The second character of this group, and it's a huge, it's a huge block, is that they switch party every time. So they are not uh, loyal, right? You, you cannot see them as a base of someone. They just switch. They were there when Sharon was the head of Kadima. They were in the center when, you know, every time we have these centrist parties. Now, Saar is a little bit to the right of Netanyahu, according to what he says and according to what we know from the people that he already brought in. But you have to understand, the Israeli public at the moment doesn't really look about prospect for any change in the Palestinian arena. Not only because of Netanyahu, also because Mahmoud Abbas is aging, and is ineffective. And it seems, and also because, you know, United States and, and the entire region, actually, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, uh, Bahrain, Sudan, everybody has moved away from the Palestinian issue. So because of that, actually, it's not an issue. It's not even in the public discourse anymore. What remains on the table is, do you want to have Netanyahu in power or you don't want to have Netanyahu in power. And it's not a right or left thing. It's about judicial system. It's about the Jabotinsky begging, if you like, heritage of being respectful to the system, respectful to democracy. And that's the reason you see not only Saar, but also Bennett, Naftali Bennett with the Amina party, gaining a lot of followers and a lot of backers because they see Bennett cares a lot about the social issues, cares about the businesses, cares about the health, cares about the situation of the simple person. And really, if you look at the last summer, you could have seen the annexation being kind of a big topic on the table for Netanyahu, whereas Bennett, the one that you would expect to jump on the annexation issue, almost didn't even talk about it. And when people were asking him on, you know, media shows, you know, why don't you deal with the annexation? He said, if it's not the livelihood of a person, I don't care. I only care about 
people bringing money at the end of the month, surviving, having food to put on the table. I don't really care about annexation at the moment. And it was shocking and also smart on his behalf because that's the reason he gained so much power. People saw him. I mean, even with the great, and I'm not saying it in a cynical way, with the great agreements, the Abraham Accords and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia and Emirates and everything that is going out there, when you talk to the normal Israeli on the streets, he will tell you, but I don't have any money to fly out there. I don't have any money to even travel to Haifa on the bus. We have a severe economic situation out here with over one million people without a job. And we are just heading towards a third lockdown as we speak right now. So this is devastating for business owners, for many people here. So is the vote, if there is one, is it going to be, like you were saying at first, a referendum on BB or no BB? Or is it going to be the old Clinton slogan, right? It's the economy, stupid. Gidon Sar started right off by saying, we cannot have Netanyahu running the country anymore. It's not because of his handling of the pandemic. It's because of his criminal trial. If you were a betting person, should we expect the Knesset to dissolve itself in the next couple of months and Israel to go to elections around March, April, May? Yeah, it's either March 16 or uh, March 23rd. Those are the two dates that are on the table at the moment. March 23rd is a less favorable option because it is five days before Pesach, before Passover night. People don't like to vote a few days before the holiday. So it could be March 16. And also it could be if Netanyahu is able to pull something or if he's able to to maneuver things uh, in the last minute, then probably the election will take place on June. You know, it's not a huge difference. Wow. All right. Well, lots to keep our eyes on over the next few months. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to read you in the Times of Israel and maybe even have you back on the podcast to uh, explain things as they go along. Tal, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Rabbi David Levy, the director of AJC New Jersey. David, when you are talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So, Safi, before we actually even sit down to our Shabbat table this week, we're going to be gathering to kindle our Hanukkiot, our Hanukkah menorahs. And I know talk of the holiday will be present at our table. The lights of the Hanukkiah were the focus of many of the discussions of our rabbis. Most notably, Hillel and Shammai had a disagreement over whether we should begin Hanukkah by kindling eight lights and decrease by one each night, or begin with one light and increase each night. Hillel argued that we should increase each night in order to bring greater sanctity and light as the holiday progresses. As we know, his argument won out, and we follow his example to this day. I had this Talmudic decision on my mind this week as we approach the anniversary of the shootings, that took place a year ago in Jersey City on the very day we will kindle the first light on our Hanukkiot this year. What I remember most about the day of that murderous attack on a kosher grocery store, which took the lives of Jersey City Detective Joseph Seals, Leah Minda Ferenc, Moshe Deutsch, and Douglas Miguel Rodriguez, is the utter darkness we felt emotionally as the light drained from the day and the reports of what happened took an ever darker turn. 
The shadow of violent anti-Semitism that had settled upon Pittsburgh and Poway had made its way to New Jersey. But then came the first bit of light to push away the darkness, as our Senator Cory Booker called to offer his support, to see how the Jewish community was doing, and to understand how he might help. More light followed, emanating from further reach-outs and strong responses from our congressional representatives, our governor, our attorney general, and our New Jersey director of Homeland Security. And the light began to shine even brighter as we gathered for a deeply moving community memorial led by Rabbi Leanna Moritz of Jersey City's Temple Bethel. And the New Jersey Community of Conscience, a new project of AJC New Jersey, added one more candle to the communal light as they issued their first ever public statement condemning the attack, sending prayers to the injured, and offering condolences to the families of the victims. Their light showed bright as an incredibly diverse group of over 60 religious and civil society leaders joined together in solidarity against that horrific act of anti-Semitic violence. In the days and months since, like the candles of our Hanukkah, we have continued to add to the light of advocacy as we push back the darkness of hatred. AJC's Anti-Semitism in America 2020 report and resolutions adopting the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, such as those passed by Highland Park and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey, are but two of the most recent examples. The resurgence of anti-Semitism both here and abroad can sometimes feel very dark and disheartening. However, Hanukkah comes to remind us to be like Hillel, facing each new day as an opportunity to kindle light to push back the darkness, to add greater sanctity to our world, and to work towards a greater sense of security for our community. The prayer I will bring to our table this Shabbat is the hope that we may continue to take to heart Hillel's lesson and each be a source of ever-increasing light for our world. So, Manya, what are you going to bring to your table this Shabbat? Thank you so much, David. That was truly a scary and dark night. As soon as this pandemic ends, I plan to make a pilgrimage out to the new market the shop owners have opened and pay my respects. At our Shabbat table, we too will be lighting the menorah and talking about what Hanukkah means to our family. Listeners can join us and share their thoughts on social media using the What Hanukkah Means to Me hashtag. We'll provide that in the show notes. I'm one of those Jews who loves Christmas. And I say that rather reluctantly on this podcast because of the response to a recent New York Times column. Many were sad to see the column in the Times parenting section this past weekend titled Saying Goodbye to Hanukkah. It was written by a woman born of a Catholic mother and a Jewish father and raised in the Unitarian Church. She recalls celebrating the Santa side of Christmas and reciting the Hebrew blessings over the Hanukkah lights. Now married with children, she and her wife have decided to focus on Santa and skip teaching the Hebrew that she, well, frankly, never understood anyway. The column adds to the insult some felt two years ago, after a father wrote about his struggle to convince his daughter that the Festival of Lights brought just as much joy and light and gifts as the man in red, even though he believed Hanukkah celebrated the Maccabees' victory over assimilated Jews, like him. I was raised to celebrate both, and if we're really being honest here, that meant celebrating Christmas every year, and Hanukkah on the years we remembered it, amid the Christmas chaos. Hanukkah was always overshadowed, but this is the dance interfaith families and, yes, assimilated Jews do every year, 
every holiday, Christmas versus Hanukkah or Christmas and. In my mind, in our house, it's not a competition. Hanukkah is a celebration of tradition, and Christmas celebrates memories. My children will also celebrate both, but differently than I did. Each holiday will have equal doses of hoopla. We will light the menorah, spin the dreidel, fry latkes, gorge ourselves on jelly donuts and gelt, unwrap presents all eight nights, and create new memories. And then, when it's over, we will turn our attention to Christmas. That's where the memories are for me. Our tree is decorated with ornaments I made out of yarn and popsicle sticks as a girl, and other creations by my children. Pictures with Santa adorn the mantle, and mistletoe dangles from a doorway. My husband, who was not raised trimming a tree or waiting for Santa, has even offered to don the red suit my father wore for so many years, marching into the room on Christmas bellowing ho ho ho. We will not say goodbye to Hanukkah, nor will we say goodbye to Christmas. What made me saddest about the recent column was this line. The author wrote, A part of me longs to dust off the menorah that sits in a corner of the basement untouched. And a few lines later, My last grandparent died in January, and in some ways, a link to the past was forever lost. I hope one of these days, the author follows that urge to dust off that menorah and create new memories. Memories old and new. That's what we will talk about and create at our Shabbat table. Sefi, what will you be talking about? When we get past Thanksgiving, when the days get short and the nighttime temperatures dip below freezing, there's only one thing I have on my mind. One thing that I'll be thinking about not only at my Shabbat table, but at basically every waking moment. Sufganiyot. Hanukkah donuts. Now, traditionally, sufganiyot are thought of as a particular kind of donut. Fairly dense dough, bursting with saccharin strawberry jelly, positively paved in a thick layer of powdered sugar. And those are good, don't get me wrong. But in Israel, however, there are far more interesting varieties. One of my favorite times of year to be in Israel is during the Hebrew month of Kislev, when sufganiyot can be found at any bakery and any grocery store besides. And they are beautiful sufganiyot. Airy dough filled with interesting jellies or flavored creams and covered in chocolate, sugar, or some kind of icing. The more bougie options will have some decorative additions like nuts or Oreo crumbs, or sometimes even a whole Oreo sticking out of the top of the donut, or, or even a little plastic baster thing full of filling, which you can squirt into the donut yourself. These are all relatively recent innovations, however. The first Hanukkah I spent in Israel was in 2009. My friends and I were enjoying the bountiful supply of ordinary jelly sufganiyot, but we also were feeling a little homesick. We were missing our favorite donut from home, Dunkin' Donuts Boston Cream Donut. This is not sponsored, but maybe it should be. We were in an exploring mood and decided to see whether we could find anything close to a Boston cream in downtown Jerusalem. Well, over the course of the next two hours, each one of us ate eight donuts. One for each night of Hanukkah. Some of that gluttony was really in the name of discovery, as we sampled cream-filled, chocolate-covered donuts to see how close Israel could come to a Boston cream. Some of it, I'm ashamed to say, were just regular jelly sufganiyot, and the only explanation I have for why we ate those on our quest is just that we were 18 years old. Here's some of the things we learned. Number one, it is possible to eat eight full-size donuts without throwing up. Number two, the Hebrew word for caramel is ribat chalav, which literally means milk jelly. 
I still don't know why that is. Number three, caramel-filled donuts are as bad as they sound. Number four, in 2009, there was exactly one place in the Shook, Jerusalem's open-air market, that sold a reasonable approximation of Boston cream donuts. And by the time we found it, we only had room in our bellies for the one. There are many reasons why I miss Israel lately, but right now, Hanukkah in Israel, for the beautiful menorahs in the windows, the cool, clear Jerusalem nights, and yes, the Sufganiyot, well, that's right on top of my list. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.